I invite you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. Last time we looked at the first seven verses, the, almost the introduction to the introduction of Proverbs, which reminded us of the import, of the absolutely essential character of wisdom, which really is found in Christ, is found in fearing, in trusting, in having faith in the Lord. Well, now we're moving on a bit, as I said, to, to see the, the two ways in which we can walk. Now, that's a theme that we find throughout Proverbs. There's the way of the wise and the way of the foolish, the way of the godly and the way of the ungodly, the way of Christ versus the way of the world. It's a theme that we find throughout Proverbs, developed in, in small ways and in great. And we find it first here, beginning in verse 8, we're going to continue down through verse 19. My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. For they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters, beloved of God in Christ, we live in a world that is filled with those who delight to do what is evil. They love to rebel against God. They love to put themselves first with no thought of the consequence to others. And they want you, they want us, they want all men to join them in their rebellion. That's the world in which we live. And therefore, we must learn to reject the evil of their invitations because the cost of following after those who live in sin is far steeper than we can afford to pay. And it's to emphasize that lesson that the text before us this morning was written. Here God's servant, seeking to cultivate wisdom among us, sets forth the wise counsel, or the counsel of a wise father to the son whom he loves. We need to take that counsel to heart because, my friends, we live in the very same world as Solomon who penned these words. Oh, there have been countless technological innovations since the time of Solomon. Yet those innovations, those inventions, those changes have served only to deepen and to diversify the temptations that face us. Yet the world in which we live, the temptations that we face are no different at heart than the temptations that filled the world 3,000 years ago when Solomon lived. And the cost of giving in to those temptations is precisely the same. Therefore, God's wise servant rejects the invitation of evildoers. That's our theme. It's a simple theme. There's nothing complex about it, but it is absolutely essential. 
God's wise servant rejects the invitation of evildoers. But we don't start in this text with exploring the invitation of those who do evil. We start with what is the prerequisite for even recognizing that the evil exists, much less for being equipped to reject it. We start with receiving wisdom's deep beauty. And that's our first point, and arguably the most important point. Our text begins with the command, hear the instruction. It's a command. Because in our sin, in the depravity with which we are born, embracing wisdom is unnatural. What comes natural to those born in the line of Adam is twisting wisdom to unwise ends. What comes natural to us is rejecting wisdom in favor of the folly of sin. But wisdom is the way of life for those who are at peace with God. So if you would reject the invitation of the evildoer, that requires that we hear the instruction and the law of those who are wise. Now that word here, it means more than simply being exposed to the sounds of particular words and phrases. It's actually a very active verb. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, says Deuteronomy 6. And that's a command to transform your whole life, to order your whole life around that confession that there is but one God who is the true God who demands our whole life. Hear, O Israel, whenever the law says that, whenever God's word declares that, it's a command to submit to God, to order our life around that which we hear, to to bring ourselves under the rule of the great heavenly King. And notice the form in which that wisdom comes that we are to hear. It comes as instruction and law. The word rendered instruction is is a word that hints at discipline or correction. There's an implied threat for those who reject it. This this, uh, instruction is the wisdom you get from your father or mother when you disobey and they discipline you. It's the wisdom that you get when you face the consequences of poor judgment. Instruction is, is that wisdom that you gain at the threat of the consequence of folly. And law, law is a concrete expression of what that wisdom looks like. The, the Hebrew word here is Torah. That's the word that's used for the law of Moses. The law is concrete. It spells out what you can and cannot do according to the judgment of God. It makes clear what behavior is righteous and what is wicked. This is what we must hear, what we must conform ourselves to. The instruction and the law of whom? Of your father and of your mother. Now there's a sense in which this is is meant to reveal the fatherly love of God. I mean, after all, He is the ultimate author of Proverbs, right? And through Christ, He has become our Father. So there's a sense in which we need to read this and recognize this is the instruction, the command of God, who wants us to recognize that it doesn't come as a harsh command that's meant to restrain us and fetter us, but rather as the loving and caring instruction of of the God who delights in us 
who longs to see us grow and, and flourish. He's our Father. However, it's, it's also the, the example of a godly father as he speaks to his child. God commands us, fathers and mothers, in Ephesians 6 verse 4, to bring up our children, to bring them up out of their depravity in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6 says we are responsible for teaching our children to follow God and to understand His Word. Hebrews 12 says that fathers are to discipline and correct their children when they stray. So instructing our children after this pattern, that is our calling as Christian parents. Now, this is not the, the main point of this text, but I believe it is the foundation for what comes next and it's an important foundation for us to camp out on for just just a moment fathers and mothers this is the model for the counsel that you are to speak to your children they need to hear from you hey pay attention to the instruction I give you young and don't ignore your mother she's wise it's not the job of someone else to bring up your children you might choose to send them to one of our schools. But those teachers, those administrators under whom they are to learn, they're not ultimately responsible for those children. You are. Those teachers, those administrators, they're just your subcontractors. But at the end of days, it is you who will stand before God and will answer for what those children learned or did not learn. For how they were instructed or how they were not instructed. So if you want godly children, if you want children who will take seriously the admonition that we find in this text, then you must take charge of their instruction. You need to be involved to know that they know the law of God. Formally, that means that you have to take charge of their godly education. You have to ensure that they're learning about the world in the light of God's Word. You need to be involved directly forming their academic, their spiritual, and their moral learning. That demands sacrifice. It might demand the sacrifice of doing without some things, new cars or fancy vacations so you can afford Christian school tuition. Or it might demand a sacrifice of time so that you can homeschool your children and ensure in your own home that they're receiving that godly education. Or perhaps, if you must, it, it will demand a sacrifice of constant re-education as you teach your children to reevaluate everything they're learning in a school that denies the validity of God's Word. Either way you do it, any option that you take, it's going to demand sacrifice. If you're going to raise up godly children, you must sacrifice for it. That includes the education they're to receive here. We're blessed to have a church that cares about the doctrinal formation of our children with catechism and Sunday school. But you know what? If you don't stand behind that and, and follow through during the week, the 45 minutes they get here will mean nothing. If you don't help them learn their memory verses, ask them about their lessons, teach them that they are able to learn this stuff and that it is important that they learn this stuff. If you don't, especially with our adolescents, if you aren't going over their lessons with them, asking about their lessons, pushing a little bit, ensuring that they, they read things over and do their memorization during the week, they won't. I'm a catechism teacher. They won't. 
And they and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren will spiritually suffer because of it. We need to be diligent as fathers and mothers to ensure that they learn in every respect what is true and good and conforms with God's Word. Because at the end of the day, you're the one who stands before God to answer for it. And it's not just about enforcement, it's about showing them. If you don't study God's Word during the week, if you don't delight to come to worship and to hear God's Word and and pay attention to the sermons and apply it diligently to your life, they won't either. If you don't see it as a joy to study God's Word with other Christians, they won't either. If you don't discipline them and instruct them with a direct appeal to God's Word, they won't think that that Word has any practical effect on their life. So brothers and sisters, this is your calling. This is our calling. And you young people, praise God for the teaching that you receive. Do you think it's a hassle when, when dad and mom remind you to do your homework or nag you about doing your catechism or lay out rules that they always expect you to follow? Well, listen, they're only doing what God Himself has called them to do. When they give you training, instruction, law that accords with God's Word, they're teaching you to treasure the wisdom of God that is greater than any other wisdom you can find in this world. They're teaching you things that will last for all eternity. Calculus might help for the short term. Science and literature and history, that's all useful. But the stuff that comes out of God's Word, the, the, the teaching that, that enables you to turn back to the instruction that comes from God, that's the stuff that prepares you for the time that has no end. That's why Scripture so often reminds children, you need to submit to your, your parents in the Lord. Because when you submit to your parents... You're learning to submit to God. You're learning to believe His Word. You're learning to follow after His instruction, to walk in the way of life. You're learning to walk in the path of Christ. Luke 2 says that Jesus always submitted to Mary and Joseph. John 6, Jesus said that He came not to do His own will, but the will of His Father in heaven. When you obey your parents, you're learning to follow His example, to walk in His path. And that, says our text, is a beautiful thing. It is a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. When you obey your parents, when you follow after godly wisdom, it is a beautiful thing in the sight of the Lord in which He delights. But notice this. It is an ornament, a necklace. Those are not the origin of beauty. They accentuate, but they do not create If you're ugly and you put a necklace on, you're just an ugly person with a necklace. But if you're beautiful and you put a necklace on, that beauty will simply accentuate your beauty. Your beauty doesn't come from what your parents teach you. Your beauty comes from Christ. Because in our sin, we are ugly. We're covered with defilement and wickedness. But when we trust in Christ, when we're joined to Him... He takes away all of that filth, all of that ugliness, all of that rebellion, and He nails it to the cross. 
And he covers us with the righteousness that characterized his life and the holiness that fills his heart. And that is beautiful in God's sight. And then when your parents and when the elders of the church and when those who are older and wiser than you in the faith, when they instruct you and give you the law of God and you take it up and hear it and embrace it, that accentuates the beauty that you have in Christ and that delights God. So embrace that adornment that is offered to you by godly parents and teachers. Embrace it as a solid foundation for the life of godliness to which you are called. Embrace that beautiful wisdom your parents offer you knowing, yes, their wisdom is imperfect, their teaching is not absolute, but trusting that God will use their instruction to draw you closer to Him, to give you an understanding of His wisdom, and that that will equip you to live even in the midst of this broken and temptation-filled world. You need all the wisdom you can get because you're living in the midst of a war. And that's the second thing we see in this text. This world sends against us temptations beyond number. And we need to recognize those temptations and their nature if we are to reject them. And so our second point is, is the calling to recognize temptation's bold cruelty. But really the heart of this section, verses 10 through 14, is found right at the start. Right at the start again we hear, my son. This godly father, he's about to give a warning to his son. And he wants him to remember this warning comes in love. This warning comes because I care about you. My son, if sinners entice you. Now that word enticement, especially in the Hebrew, it, it speaks of a temptation that comes through deception. Satan's not stupid. He doesn't say, you know what? Hey, why don't you do something that's going to be really great for about five minutes and that's going to really be horrifically bad for the rest of eternity? Wouldn't that be great? Let's do that. He doesn't say that. No, he lies. He accentuates that momentary pleasure, that momentary rush, and he seeks to get you to totally ignore all of the pain and suffering and, and judgment that's going to come in response. That's what enticement is. That's what temptation at heart is. Enticement is what sinners do. Now, of course, we all sin, but we're not all sinners in the sense that is spoken of here. We're talking about people who are defined by their sin, who are defined by their rebellion. And they want you to follow in their way because misery and destruction loves company. But this father warns his son to be skeptical. When you hear men say to you, don't believe every word they say. Don't just accept as true what your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors tell you. Be skeptical in a healthy, godly way. When sinners entice, when they make their tempting claims, they dress it up to seem wonderful. I mean, look at, look at the temptation they bring. The first thing they say is, come with us. And the last thing they say is, let us all have one purse. Belonging. They, they want you, they accept you just as they are. No judgment acceptance. Isn't that attractive? Who doesn't desire to feel wanted, accepted, appreciated for what you are with no strings attached? And these folks who entice, there's no, there's no self-doubt, there's no shyness about them. They make bold plans seemingly without doubt. They grab life by the neck and they make it bow to their whims. For folks who are doubtful, for folks who are shy, for those who are filled with worry and fear and self-doubt, for those who feel like 
outsiders who feel like life is dreary, who worry that they are not enough. In other words, with, for folks who are, are plagued with all of the stuff that comes with life in a fallen world, for all of us in some sense. When someone who is looked up to by many in society comes and says, come with me. Join yourself with me. That's deeply seductive. And yet the heart of their plans are selfish, immoral, and destructive. They aren't shy about harming people, shedding the blood of the innocent. They equate themselves with shale, with, with the realm of death. They willingly swallow those who have done nothing to deserve it. This is the voice of remorseless, selfish greed. It's all about what I want, what I crave, what I alone can get with no thought to what it costs others. Now that sounds pretty, pretty bold, right? I mean, that sounds pretty out there. Surely, Satan's not that brash. And you know what? He's usually not right at the start. Satan's not stupid. He doesn't start out by telling folks, hey, we're going to shed blood and swallow people whole and we're going to take what's theirs as plunder. He doesn't start out that way. No, he starts out with those, those little suggestions. Why should those rich people have so much when you have to work so hard for so little? Why should the one percenters have everything? Or why should, why should those those antiquated claims of morality stand in the way of your good time? Or, or what will it hurt to take a little bit more money from the government or from such a big company or from, from such rich people? I mean, they won't even miss it. They've got so much. Or don't you deserve a bigger piece of the pie, don't you? And your greed starts to make their tempting claims seem legitimate. You want an excuse to have more money, more toys, more power, more stuff. You want to justify getting even with those privileged people. You want a good reason to color outside the lines. And those tempters, they give you that reason. And all the more so as they start describing the rewards. Look at, look at verses 13 and 14. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Just cast your lot among us. They promise wealth, worldly riches, the stuff that makes the world go round. And the more they talk about how rich you can get and how easy it is, the more they talk about it, the more you start to believe. And the more you start to believe, the more you dream about what it would be like. And the more you dream, the more desperate you become to make it happen. And soon you're willing to justify anything, to believe anything in order to make it so. And when I say anything, I mean anything. You'll find reasons to justify Lying on your taxes, stealing from your employer, snagging things out of your neighbor's yard. You'll, you'll focus on the challenge of stealing from work so that you don't have to think about the morality of stealing from work. Or you'll even, you'll even dwell on the relief that you'll feel being freed from pregnancy so that you can avoid thinking about the reality of what abortion does. That's where it leads. That's the self-justification that temptation and sin brings. You're willing to justify anything at the end of the day because of the promise of good things that they hold in front of you. Because those good things, they become your God. That money, that power, that prestige. The influence you can have over people that, that think you're cool, that think you're the one to look up to. 
the money, the toys, the experiences, the, the thrill becomes the God after which you chase. And you don't think of it that way. No, no, no. The people who follow this course, they still think they're Christians. They think they're fine. They don't go to church anymore, but they start justifying it, saying, you know, I can worship God just as well out on the golf course. I can worship God just as well sitting at home. And then I'm not distracted by all those people. You know, church is filled with people and they're, they're a mess. They're not like me. And they justify it and they harden their consciences. And soon they're willing to do anything. They're, they're quite willing to shed blood and lurk secretly for the innocent without cause and swallow them alive like shale and whole like those who go down to the pit. They're willing to walk right alongside Satan if only he will fill their dreams with reality. Folks, understand this... This is the bold cruelty that always, always, always hides behind the subtle words of temptation. Join us, says the tempter, and all this reward will be yours. It's the call of thieves who get rich from those who did nothing wrong. It's the call of bullies who build their self-image on the wreckage of the self-image of others. It's the call of socialists who want to, to get by on the backs of those who work hard. It's the call of pornographers who offer passion at the cost of demeaning a stranger and betraying those who love you the most. All that you desire, all that you crave, all that is promised comes at the cost of death and destruction and cruelty unimaginable. Also to yourself. Your riches, your pride, your power, your gain, it destroys the neighbor on whom you pray. It demoralizes the people who respected you, but it also destroys you. And so your godly father urges you do not consent. Recognize the cruelty of the tempter's call. The cruelty of pursuing gain at the cost of your neighbor's life. The cruelty of rebelling against God who gave you all things. Recognize the cruelty, the ugliness, the deep wickedness of that rebellion. And having recognized, refuse to walk that path. Instead, reject sin's sure destruction. That's the last thing we see here. Rejecting sin's sure destruction. Our final section begins in verse 15 with a reminder. My son, again that term of endearment. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. It's a reminder that we're going to choose. Intentionally or not, we're going to choose which path we walk. It's the life of conversion. Every day you choose which path you're going to walk down. You're going to take the narrow path or the broad path. You're going to take the well-trodden way or are you going to take the, the, the less walked path? We heard it in Psalm 1. That man is blessed who fearing God from sin restrains his feet. Who will not stand with wicked men who shuns the scorner's seat. The Lord will guard the righteous well. Their way, their path to him is known. But the way, the path, the road of sinners far from God shall surely be our throne. All men must decide what path, what way they will follow through life. Those who are wise will refuse to walk the way of rebellion, of sin, of evil. Keep your foot from their path. The verb there indicates something that requires effort, which tells us something. 
It tells us the autopilot path, the path of least resistance, is the path of sin, of giving in to those temptations. It's hard. Young people, it is hard to stand up against that temptation when all your friends say, hey, let's go down that back road over there and drink a case of beer. Let's all get drunk and just do whatever happens. Or when they say, you know, let's just go out tonight and not worry about that big exam. We know what the answers are going to be. Here, take this sheet. It'll all be good. And when they say, your parents will never know. You'll never get caught. We have a foolproof plan. The easiest thing to do is give in because if you don't, you know you're going to be mocked. You know you're going to be the butt of the jokes. You know they're going to rub it in if they manage to pull it off. The hard course is to stand firm, to keep your foot from their path. But understand, even though they start out small, even though they start out with sins that seem insignificant, David did not set out to become a murderer. David simply got tired of leading the army out into battle. He was tired. He wanted to stay home. He wanted a vacation. So he sent the army out with its capable general. And he stayed home. That was wrong. He was neglecting his calling. But it was seemingly small. But then with all of that time on his hand, the devil loves idle hands, doesn't he? With all that time on his hands, he began surveying the city from his lofty vantage point. And what did he see? But a woman bathing on the roof. That was not inappropriate, by the way. That was where you generally bathed. And in the middle of the day, all the men should be out working. So no one should see that. But David wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. And so he saw. And he didn't avert his eyes. He kept seeing. He kept looking. And then he took it to the next step. And soon he committed adultery. And then he took it to the next step. He sought to deceive. And then when that didn't work, he took it to the next step. And pretty soon, David is not only... David is not only... A lazy man. But he's an adulterer. He's an idolater. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's a thief. He's all of that. He didn't set out to do that. He, he set out to sin small, but he sinned huge. And so does Satan lead each one of us. Jeremiah chapter 9, or chapter 17, verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Left to our own devices, we will justify following after the path of rebellion. So we need to intentionally, daily, moment by moment, heed our Father's call to follow after instruction and not to neglect the law of our mother. Because those who lead us down that path of temptation, they lead us to our death. Look at verse 16. Their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. They run toward evil. They don't wander accidentally into that which opposes God. Evildoers, tempters, knowingly lead you into that which will destroy you. They rush to shed blood. They want to destroy hearts and lives and souls, including yours. They're not your friend. If you follow that path, with each step, it becomes harder to step away. With each bend of the path, it becomes easier to walk to the next bend. And its end, verse 19, its end is the life, literally the soul of those who walk that path. 
And my friends, as those who have known God, as those who have heard the gospel of Christ, we must not. Look at verses 17 and 18. He speaks of a net set to catch a bird. You want to catch a bird. Kids, you, you know this, right? You want to catch a bird? You don't set the trap out where they can see it. You don't lay a net where they can observe it easily. If you, if you lay a net, you then sprinkle over it something that will camouflage it, right? If you're going to set a snare, you make sure to run that snare alongside of a stick or something else that will make it look natural. You don't just hang it out there because even birds, as dumb as birds can be, even they're smart enough to see that's a trap. I'm not going there. But the enticement of sinners... For those of us who know God and the wisdom that God has given, the enticement of sinners is an obvious trap. How many times have we been warned about the folly and the destructiveness of sin? That lays bare the net that Satan has laid for us. The question then becomes, are we smarter than birds? Because if we're not, if we're foolish enough to set our foot on that snare, if we're dumb enough to think that we can grab the bait without getting caught in the trap, and kids, that's, that's what you're doing when you play around with pornography. That's what you're doing when you cheat on just that one test. That's what you're doing when you think you can just get away with sneaking out or trying that, that quick thrill that your friends enjoy. You're trying to grab the bait without getting caught in the trap. You ever see what happens when a mouse tries that? The early bird gets the worm, but it's the second mouse that gets the cheese, and there's a reason for that. You're not fast enough, good enough, smart enough. You're not more creative than Satan is. The only escape from his snare is to not take the bait. And the only way we can do that is through Christ. Jesus alone was the perfect Son who always obeyed His heavenly Father, who never forsook the law of His mother, the church, who refused every single offer of the evil one and his minions. Jesus saw clearly the deceitfulness of sin and its ugly destruction. And having walked unswervingly down the narrow path of righteousness, Jesus suffered and died for us who haven't. He did it for me. He did it for every one of you who would trust in Him. He did it to cleanse us from the filth of the sin that attached to us when we walked down that wide path. And He did it to free us from the power of the tempter's voice, from the power of that path, so that we could reverse course and start walking down the path of life. But the only way we can partake of His power, the only way we can receive the forgiveness He has earned, is if we confess with the thief at His side, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's only if we believe with Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, for me, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. It's only if you believe on Him, confess Him, live for Him, 
that you will be freed, restored, made new, and empowered to reject the sure destruction of sin. But if you trust in Him, then He assures you with that thief on the cross, you will be with me in paradise. He assures you with the disciples who stood before Him in John 10, no one can snatch you from my hand. God's wise servant rejects the invitation of evildoers. If you would be wise, if you would have life eternal, then you must receive joyfully and continually the deep beauty of the wisdom that God gives you through your parents, through your elders, through those whom He has set in your life to instruct you. And having received that wisdom, you must recognize the bold cruelty of temptation that surrounds you and you must reject the sure temptation of the sin to which it calls. And again, this you can do only by putting your hope, your trust, your very life in Christ, the faithful Son of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need that which Jesus alone can provide. And so we pray that you would, would give us eyes to see the ugliness of the sin that lurks, that you would give us hearts to reject that rebellion and to embrace the wisdom that is around us, that you would teach us to rejoice in the wisdom that you have set before us as a feast and that you would deliver us from the tempter's snare. Father, we pray it in the name of Jesus in whom alone we find victory. Amen.